It is no great secret that recognising who someone is is massively important. Uh, there are loads of situations where you must recognise, you must recognise who someone is. If you are in a job, then you must know who your manager is so that you can then treat them appropriately. If you went to the Queen's Garden Party, you would need to know the, the members of the royal family so that you could greet them appropriately. Um, if you had to meet someone for coffee at a certain time, you would need to know what they look like so that you don't end up just sitting with somebody random. Recognizing people is hugely important. The part of the Bible that we're going to look at tonight shows us what it looks like to recognize Jesus. This is important. Recognizing who Jesus is is the most important recognition that you could ever make. Now, straight away, some of you will know him. Some of you might know that you know nothing at all about Jesus. Some of you might think that you know Jesus. Yet all of us need to see this passage and find out what it means to recognize Jesus. It has huge consequences for our whole lives. So like Ross said, we're going to look at a part of Jesus' life story that comes shortly before his death. He is on his way up to Jerusalem, which was the center of Jewish life, and there's a group of his followers, his disciples, who are coming with him. We will see what they think of Jesus, what some other people think of Jesus, and then what Jesus thinks of himself. We're going to see that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, and that Jesus is God. Each of these is hugely important titles that carries massive weight. So if everyone's there, Luke chapter 19, I'm going to be reading from verse 28. So follow along with me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you 
and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So first of all, we're going to see that this passage encourages us to take the Lord at his word. Looking back down at verses 28 down to 34, take the Lord at his word. In the story, we saw Jesus telling two of his disciples, his followers, to go ahead into the town and get him a donkey. This isn't an unusual request. We might expect Jesus to be tired of walking by this point. Quite fancies a lift. Yet what is surprising is that Jesus tells them exactly where to find the donkey, what kind of donkey to expect, and even how to respond to the questions about what they are doing. Jesus is able to tell them before they even lay eyes on the town specifics about what they will find and how they are to act. He tells them to fetch a colt as a young donkey. This itself is surprising. For example, you wouldn't believe me if I told you right now, go out into the street and there you will find a blue car with the keys in the ignition. Go out and get it and bring it to me you would be right to think, no, you don't know that, you're being daft. It would be very strange, and you would have no reason to take me at my word. Yet when Jesus tells the disciples to do this, they follow what he has to say. Well, that's because they recognize who he is. They acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. They call him that, look at verse 34. When people ask, well, why have you just taken that donkey? It doesn't belong to you. They say, ah, the Lord needs it. They call him Lord. They know it is true. So of course they take him at his word. They know that he is the Lord, the one who is in charge, the one whom they can take at his word. And look, he has proved right. Verse 32 again. It happens exactly as he told them. As they go in, they find a donkey, they just take it. People ask about it. Jesus knew what was going to happen. His authority, therefore, comes from who he is. It comes from who he is as Lord. Um, for example, if you were at the beach and you were swimming in the sea, you would take no notice if a little child were to tell you, there's a shark there, you need to get out. If a small child told you that, you'd be like, yeah, okay, all right, and carry on swimming. It would be a very different story if the lifeguard began to shout, shark! You'd get out of the water pretty fast. Because he has authority, you listen to him. In the same way, these disciples know to listen to Jesus because he has authority even when the commands he gives are unexpected and a little bit strange, they know to obey him. Now, they could have disobeyed Jesus and used their own initiative. They could easily have gone and bought a donkey or sought out the most majestic horse that they could have done on the Mount of Olives and thought, yeah, Jesus will be really pleased with us if we do this. But they don't. They do what Jesus has told them to do. 
and it wonderfully serves his purpose, as we're going to see later on. Their response to Jesus being Lord is obedience. They know that here is someone that we can take at his word. Here is someone who can be fully trusted because he has the power and knowledge to know what is right. The reality of his lordly authority is that they take him at his word without need for excuse or apology. They simply obey because they know who he is. And that is true of us today as well. We can also take Jesus at his word when we read the Bible and come under its teaching. We too can know what it is to know Jesus as Lord and to practice this faithful obedience under the perfect Lord. Now at this point, this may sound terrible to you, to some of you anyway. You may be thinking that this sounds like a lifetime of servanthood, blindly following without independent thought or any agency for yourself. Can I show you that this is not the case at all? This is willfully submitting to the authority of a much greater power, the Lord Jesus, who knows what is best for us. He knows humanity better than we know ourselves. When we listen to him, we are listening to the one who created us and knows our every thought and intention. He is perfect. I think it is also true that humans have a desire to take somebody at their word. We find politicians who lie and authority figures who abuse their power absolutely repulsive. It really sickens us to see that because we were made to serve this perfect authority who never lies or takes advantage of people. Somewhere deep down, we are still designed to be led by God. So when we see leaders who do a bad job, when we find our heroes are flawed, it hurts because we were made with such high expectations of our leaders. We were made to follow the words of the Lord Jesus. So any human power that we sit under is doomed to disappoint. It can never compare to him. He is perfect in wisdom, in patience, in understanding, in compassion for us. He far excels even the best of human leadership because he is Lord. So can I invite you to come to the leader, the Lord who will never disappoint, whose every word is for your good, whose knowledge and authority are perfect, Jesus stands alone as the one whom we can take at his word. We do this today by following the teaching of the Bible. We know from Hebrews 1 verse 2 that God speaks to us through Jesus and through the Bible. If we are to take Jesus at his word, then we need to spend time in the Bible reading what he says. We need to look to the Bible for what it has to teach us it is there that we can read his commands and know him, recognize him. As Lord, Jesus is the only one qualified to make these demands, both of the disciples and of us today. 
when we recognize who he is, we can take the Lord Jesus at his word. Well, we've seen that Jesus is Lord, whom we can take at his word. We're going to see now that we should praise the king. Looking back now at verses 35 to 40. Praise the king. Back in the story, Jesus now has the donkey that he asked for. This would not have looked glorious or majestic. I'm sorry if you like donkeys, they don't. They're slightly stupid looking animals. They don't look magnificent. Particularly not with a fully grown man sitting on their back. Yet, by coming into Jerusalem in this way, he is identifying himself as the king. He is sending a message so that they can recognize him as the king. We read in the Old Testament book, Zechariah, in chapter 9, verse 9, this prophecy. Let me read it to you. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By choosing this method of transport, Jesus is saying, look, I am this promised king. He, he certainly didn't look like a king. He was a wandering teacher. He probably looked quite unkempt and messy. The donkey he's on doesn't even have a saddle. That's why they throw their cloaks over it. By any human measure, Jesus looks like a man sitting on a small donkey. Yet, by these words, he is shown to be the king that the Old Testament was looking forward to. From that passage that Ross read us earlier, he is shown to be this promised son of David who would bring with him righteousness and salvation. When we read this, this becomes an epic scene. The king is coming home. And now we see Jesus taking the praise of a king as well. The disciples praise God for the king is with them. Read verse 38 with me. They cry out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Previously in Luke, Jesus had told people to keep quiet about him. Earlier on in chapter 8, after Jesus heals a dead child, he tells the astonished parents, do not tell anyone what has happened. When he's doing these amazing miracles, previously he's been telling people, no, just keep quiet for now. Yet here now, we see that this has changed. As he draws closer to Jerusalem, he shows who he is. He is the king. He does this because it is in Jerusalem that he will be betrayed and mocked and crucified. He must show himself as king because he knows that soon he will be killed. Yet look at how the disciples honor and praise their king. In verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road in front of him. Uh, this is similar to the story about Walter Raleigh, you know, the old English guy. There's lots of them, but this is one. One day, as he and Queen Elizabeth were out walking, they came to a puddle. And the story goes that Walter Raleigh whipped off his jacket, spread it over the puddle, so that the queen would not have to get her feet wet. It's a similar picture to what we see here. It's a picture of submitting to royalty, showing how much more important they are than you. 
It's the same here with Jesus. People throw their cloaks on the ground and let a donkey walk on them in order to praise King Jesus. Having recognized the king, people praise him. We can also learn a lot from the pattern of praise that we see the disciples following in this section. Looking back at the verses, let's just take a quick look at how they praise Jesus. Firstly, they use scripture to do it. Look with me at verse 38. That's a quote that they've taken from Psalm 118 verse 26. They are delighted to see the king and they use the word given by God to express that delight. Their praise is profoundly biblical. Secondly, they have begun to praise God for the mighty works that they have already seen. Look there at the end of verse 37. They have recognized him and they know the one whom they are singing to. This is an important distinction. They are not praising their ideal of Jesus, what they want Jesus to be, how they imagine Jesus, but rather they are worshiping Jesus as he is, as he has revealed himself to be. Their worship is rooted in who Jesus is. It is impacted by him. It comes out of knowing him. Thirdly, do you notice the excitement of this scene? Verse 37, the whole crowd began worshiping. It's not just a select few, the whole crowd. The image of worship here is that every believer will worship the king. It doesn't matter if they don't like singing. There's no sense of shame or humility. They just want to praise the king. Their worship is for everybody. And each of them is elated to be a part of praising the king as he rides in. It is their joy to praise him. And well, finally, we see that the disciples are joyfully praising God using loud voices. They are delighted to have the king with them. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then he deserves all the praise in the world. And these disciples have recognized him. So their hearts burn with praise. They cannot stop praising. It overflows from them. The joy of having King Jesus with them is elation. They are triumphant as they declare his glory. There's nobody amongst them who doesn't sing. Nobody who stares down at their feet or sings quietly so that the person next to them can't hear them. That just wouldn't do. It would be laughable for somebody to be so restrained while they praise the king. They sing out in loud voices, all for the praise of King Jesus. It is a massively encouraging picture to see here. Their worship is rooted in scripture, in the Bible. Their worship is informed by who Jesus is, who he has shown himself to be. Their worship is for everyone. Their worship is joyful. It is a wonderful picture of what it is to praise God. And we see here a picture of what it, this should look like for us today. This glimpse into how the disciples praise Jesus should inform what our worship looks like. It's incredible.
Looking forward to singing the last song now, by the way. It's going to be good, isn't it? Amid this scene of joy and praise, though, there is a twinge of sadness. There is a twinge of sadness because not everyone there is praising Jesus. There are some people stood there with disapproving faces, with arms crossed, looking onto this scene with scowling faces. The Pharisees are no strangers in the Gospel of Luke. They have been ever at Jesus' heels, questioning him and his followers, trying to trip him up. These religious teachers have had doubts about Jesus for a while. And now what they see boils their blood. They are appalled to see his disciples treat Jesus like a king and to dare to use a psalm to praise him. Who do you think you are? They say it is too much for them. They call out in verse 29, in verse 39, they cry out, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They say, stop this, control your followers. Jesus' response shows us the importance of the disciples' praise. Please look down with me at verse 40. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. We have to take Jesus literally here. If the disciples had not been praising Jesus, if they had not been crying out joyfully for their king, then creation itself would have cried out. The stones, the very earth, would have begun to sing the praises of Jesus. There is a need at the heart of creation for Jesus to be praised If the disciples do not do it, then all creation will cry out. There will not be silence. You cannot silence the praise of Jesus. He must be praised. All creation was made to praise him. Jesus is Lord, whom we are to take at his word. The disciples know this. He is even king, whom we are to praise. The disciples seem to recognize even this. We are beginning to get a fuller understanding of who Jesus is, what recognizing him will mean. Yet what we see next completes the picture. It will also shock us. It should move us to action. Third thing for this evening, looking down at verses 40 to 44, we are to receive God's praise. Jesus is still riding towards Jerusalem on the donkey, and now he catches sight of the city itself. He can see many houses full of people, busy streets, the palaces of rich rulers, and shining above it all, the magnificent temple building, the pride of Israel, the center of Jewish worship. As Jesus takes all this in, he begins to weep. Jesus breaks down in tears at the sight of the city because he sees the desperate situation of the people. He sees more than a walled city containing buildings, business, commerce, worship. He sees people under the wrath of God. He sees that they have no idea what will bring them peace. Jesus weeps because he knows that judgment must fall on people who are like this. 
to Jesus, it is like like looking at a great city burning, a city being engulfed by flames. They did not know what would bring them peace because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. They didn't recognize Jesus for who he is. They did not realize that Jesus had come to be with them, to offer them this peace. Therefore, they faced a terrible judgment. Jesus, he's speaking in about 33 AD. He talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. He speaks of the day when, read down with me, verses 43 to 44. Follow along. He speaks of the day when enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And in the year 70 AD, the Roman Empire turned its wrath against Jerusalem. Under Titus, son of the Emperor Vespasian, an army of around 60,000 Roman soldiers stormed the city. They built ramps against the walls and completely encircled the city in a siege, fulfilling Jesus' words. As the city fell, thousands died and the fire claimed the magnificent temple building. The scenes described by the historian Josephus make for difficult reading and compare with some of the worst atrocities you could read about. Thousands died in the siege or were slaughtered by the soldiers or were consumed by fire. Jesus knew this and therefore he wept when he saw the city. He says the destruction was because the inhabitants did not recognize Jesus when he came to them. They would have escaped destruction if they had recognized the king. That would have brought them peace. What does this have to do with you, you ask? That was 2,000 years ago. Well, the destruction that Jesus saves believers from is far worse, however. They do not face the destruction of a Roman army, but as sinners, we all face the judgment of Jesus as God. We all face judgment and destruction because all of us have turned away from God and chosen to disobey him. All of us sin and live in defiance of the creator God. The destruction that we all face is that of divine wrath, of God angry with those who reject him. That is far worse than the Roman army that Jerusalem faced. By ourselves, we cannot find peace from this. By ourselves and our own efforts, we cannot escape this judgment and destruction. Yet, that is why Christ came to Jerusalem. He came so that hopeless people could be offered peace and that sinful people could be offered forgiveness. Once Jesus is in Jerusalem, the rulers of the city who don't recognize him will have him flogged, beaten, mocked, and crucified. This Lord, this King, this God, 
will die in a horrific way upon a wooden cross. Yet this was always the plan. By dying on the cross, Jesus took the judgment and destruction that sinners deserve. The wrath of God was poured out on him, also that sinful people could find peace. That is, people like the disciples, people like those in Jerusalem, even the ones that killed him, even you and me, Jesus died so that they could find peace, that we could find peace. That very destruction that he wept over, he was to take it away through his death. Well, the people in Jerusalem did not recognize who he was. They did not recognize him as God. The tragedy is that they missed out on this peace. To come into this peace then, you must look to Jesus and recognize him as God. You must recognize him as the only one qualified to bring peace. It was only because of his divinity that Jesus' obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. Look, only God could bring us peace from God's wrath. This is what matters, that we recognize him as Lord king and God. If he is only Lord and king to you, then you have not found peace in him and face destruction. If you see Jesus as just a moral teacher, as a force for good in the world, even as somebody who said a lot of really important things, yet to you he is not God who came to die for sinners then you do not know what can bring you peace. So do you know Jesus? Have you recognized him as the Lord who you should take at his word? As the king who we must praise? And as God who alone can bring us peace? It isn't enough only to recognize him as Lord and king you can obey his words. You can have a, live a good life. You could even sing his praises with passion in a loud voice. And yet, if you have not recognized him as God, then you are outside of his peace. This offer of peace is open to you, even today. Today, you can recognize him for all that he is. You can recognize him as Lord King and God, and you can know his peace. Let's pray.